Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to James chapter 1, New Testament book of James. And that's page 1071, I believe, if you're using one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. I told you as we began this book a few weeks ago that by the end of the summer, if we spend our summer in the book of James, that you would have a love-hate relationship with this book. And if you've been here the last two weeks, you know what I'm talking about. James is a book with every passage, it really punches you in the gut. In fact, if uh, James is rightly read, I think it's the most emotional, the most difficult book in the entire Bible. And as we come to the end of today's message, you will find that it is no exception. Uh, you, you know, I'm an inquisitive kind of person. I'm curious about things. That often leads me to ask questions that uh, uh, may, may discourage more than they, than they uh, enlighten. Uh, but let me share with you some of the questions that I often ask myself, a question about why and a question about how. Why is it that for so many Christians who faithfully attend church every week, that there is so little difference between their lifestyles and the lifestyles of many people uh, who do not profess Christ and who do not attend church? Have you ever wondered that? Why does it seems like seem like oftentimes there is very little difference in the lifestyle of those who profess Christ and some who do not profess Christ. I'll give you another question. Why is it that so many Christians seem to see their faith and their commitment and their passion for God fade through the years such that at the end of life they have stopped pursuing God and studying and worshiping God altogether. Why are there so many people uh, that we would call Christians that would be registered as members of our church who are missing in action? Why is it that for so many people their faith fades? I'll give you another question. And I'm giving you these questions, they sound very different, but I think they all have a common answer. Why is there so much fruit of the world in the lives of Christians and so little fruit of the Spirit? Do you know what the fruit of the world is? It's depression and stress and anxiety. And the fruit of the Spirit is just the opposite of that. It's joy and peace and patience. So why is it that that for those of us who profess to be Christians, we have so much of the depression, stress, and anxiety, and so little of the joy and the peace and the patience. I'll give you another question. Same, same answer, different questions. Why will there be such surprise at the judgment? Uh, one of the scariest passages in all the Bibles in Matthew chapter 25, where it talks about the judgment and God separating the saved from the lost and the Bible says that many who are lost will be so surprised that they're lost and they will uh, appeal the decision by talking about their faithful church attendance and even their service. And they will be shocked that God says that they are lost. Depart from me for I never knew you. Why could that be true? Why is it that that is true? Well, I think the answer to all of those questions, I think there's just one answer. And it is a spiritual disease called deception. Deception is a very dangerous spiritual disease that almost anybody can catch 
and it can bring terrible consequences in our lives. And I think many people who even attend church week in and week out have caught, uh, they have the, this spiritual disease of, of discipline. I'm sorry, of deception. Discipline would be the opposite of that, right? We have the spiritual disease of deception. Now, l- let me show this to you in, in the Old Testament before we see it in the book of James. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 5, the prophet asked the same question that I just asked. And here's how he said it. Why have these people turned away? Why is Jerusalem always turning away? He looked at the people of God in his day, and he asked the same question that I asked. Why is it that so many are missing in action? Why do so many people, their faith fades through the years? And then God gave the answer. He says, they take hold of deceit and they refuse to return. You know, deception is when we think something is true when in fact it is not true. When we're certain that things are one way when in fact things are a very different way and deception is, is dangerous, as we've said. If, if you get into a, a boat this summer Maybe you're down at the coast and it's uh, some vacation time and so you get in a boat and they tell you that that boat is seaworthy and you get about five miles out into the ocean or into the gulf and then the hull of that boat splits open, uh, you're likely going to die and you're going to die primarily because of what? Deception. You were deceived in believing the boat was seaworthy when in fact it was not. Deception can kill. If you believed that someone was a close friend of yours. And so you could share with her, you could share with him anything. And because you believed they were such good friends, you shared with them one of the darkest, deepest secrets of your life, only to find out the next day that she had posted it on Facebook. Okay, now that would be a problem, right? And the problem is a problem of deception. You believed something was true when in fact it was not true. If you thought that your medical symptoms were just a result of seasonal allergies, and so you just lived with it for a couple of years, only to later find out that you had some disease that could have been easily treated in the early stages, but now has gone past the point at which it could be treated, you will die, and you will die really from deception, right? You believed something was true when in fact it was not. If you believe that your walk with God is good and healthy and close, and you get to the end of this life, or you get to some point of calamity in this life, and you discover that your relationship with God is not what you thought it was. You will suffer, and you will suffer primarily because of deception. It is a dangerous thing. And so James, beginning in chapter 1, verse 21, uh, really gives us the science of deception. Last week, we saw the science of temptation. James is very detailed in his uh, description of these things that are so important to us. And we saw last week how we could go through deception, I'm sorry, temptation, and we could see how these different pieces work together. Well, here in this passage, beginning in verse 21, we see the same kind of thing uh, when it comes to deception. And so I want to ask you, listen, let me just give you a pastor appeal this morning. If you never pay attention to a message, pay attention to this one. Next week, read the news, play solitaire on your phone. Uh, That's fine. Next week is fine. But this week, 
I really want you to pay attention because I really believe that there are many of us and maybe all of us in some ways, and we're, we're dealing with deception, maybe in a, in a small way or maybe in a big way, and, and we're living dangerous lives because of the deception because we believe something is true when it's not. And if, if there's anything that we ought to study, anything we ought to know in God's word, it's what James says very simply and plainly about the subject of deception. I remember a few years ago, well, a bunch of years ago, I was, uh, I was a youth pastor and I took uh, all of the guys in my youth group on a whitewater rafting trip. I'd never been on a whitewater rafting trip. I didn't even know what I signed up for. Uh, turned out I signed this up for something that uh, none of us had any business going on. Uh, but we went to uh, the top of the Chattooga River uh, in, um, in Georgia, northern Georgia, southern Tennessee. I think it's sort of, we, we did a little bit of both there. Uh, but it was all class four, class five rapids. I had no idea what that was. Uh, I know now it, is, it means that somebody like me shouldn't go on it. But um, <laughs> we, were, we were getting ready to, to get in the rafts and they were giving us the safety speech. And uh, I, I, I looked around, nobody, uh, including me, uh, was really interested in the safety speech. We just wanted to get in the boat, just get in the rafts, let us go. We can swim, we'll be, we'll be fine. And so I could feel a little bit of the frustration of the person giving the safety speech because uh, I have been the speaker when nobody was listening to what I had to say. And I know of that frustration. And so what the safety speaker did is he, he stopped and said, let me tell you a story. Now, I don't know now if this was a true story or just something he told us to get our attention, but he said that the previous week, uh, that one of the times when one of the rafts turned over, that uh, one of the guys attempted to stand up in a class four rapid. Now, some of you are whitewater guys, and you know a lot more about this than I do, but my understanding is that's about the worst thing you could do. You don't try to stand up. You just have to ride it to, to you get to some calmer waters. But this guy tried to stand up and he put his feet down. They went between two rocks. The pressure of the water uh, roared up on his back, bent him over, and according to the story, broke both of his legs just below his knees. Now he told us that story, and then guess what? We were glued in to the rest of that safety talk. I, I can almost repeat it to you now some 20 plus years later, uh, 30 years later maybe. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to listen. Uh, here's your Chattooga River story for spiritual deception. 2 Timothy 3 says this, Know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will hold to a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. He says that at the last days, that's these days, there will be people who have a form of godliness. They go to church, uh, they pray, they're members, they've been baptized, but they, but they have a form of godliness that's just not real. Now that's the Chattooga River story. We need to listen to the science of deception. So let's look at this uh, passage together, James chapter 1. I'd love for you to stand with me. Let's, let's read a few verses of this and just give special attentions and reverence to the, to the word of God. The Bible says in verse 21, therefore ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Uh, 
but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see that word? Deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of works, this person will be blessed in what he does. May God add his blessings to his holy word. Please be seated. So in those few verses, and in a moment we'll read a a little further, uh, we're going to learn something of the science of temptation, science of deception. He gives us three sources for deception, three ways deception can come into our lives, and we should know those. Number one, deception comes when we listen with stopped up ears. When we listen to God's word, when we read God's word with stopped up ears. Now, if you look back at verse 21, he says, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil. Now, the word there for moral filth is one that's used only one time in the New Testament. And uh, so we really can't look to see how it's used in other places to get a good definition. The root word for that word is, is the root word for dirt. And so he's talking about some form of dirt. But, but I, I researched this word this week to see how it was used, not in the Bible, since this is the only place it's used in the Bible, but in other literature of that period. And what's interesting is that medical doctors would use this word to refer to earwax. They would refer to dirt and wax in the ear that would keep people from hearing. Now, earwax was was a a big problem there. The the people were of a Middle Eastern and Eastern descent, which made earwax much worse. And then there wasn't the daily hygiene that we would have today. And so consequently, many people just couldn't hear physically because their ears were stopped up. And so one of the main tasks of a doctor in those days, one of the main complaints that he or she would get is, you got to help me hear better. And to hear better just simply meant to get the dirt out of your ears. So James takes this picture and he teaches us a spiritual truth. He says, just as you cannot hear physically when you have dirt in your ears, so you cannot hear spiritually when you have dirt in your ears. What he says is you need to get the dirt of of the earwax out of your ears, out of your spiritual ears, in order to hear the word of God, which he says at the end of verse 21, can save your soul. Now let me give you this simple process. Uh, God's word is perfect, we know that. Psalm 19, seven, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. God's word is powerful. We know that from Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that God's word is sufficient, which means it can do anything we need for it to do in our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness. But here we see that God's word is also, and I'm going to invent a word here, but God's word is distortable, distortable. Now what I mean by that is that as powerful as God's word is, 
as sufficient as God's word is, when it filters through the dirt in our lives, when it filters through the sin that's in our lives, God's word gets distorted. We can't hear it. Now, you hear it physically. You can hear my voice and and understand my words. But if there's dirt in your life, if there's sin in your life, unconfessed sin in your life, then the, the spiritual truth of the words that I share it gets, it gets distorted. You begin to think the person next to me needs to hear that. You begin to think that's something I dealt with 14 years ago. You begin to think that that is said one way, but it really should be applied in my life in a more spiritual way. And, 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 and we don't really hear the truth. It gets distorted in our hearts because our lives are filled with so much dirt. And when there's dirt, there's distortion. And when there's distortion, there's deception. One of the ways we get confused about the truth of our walk with God is we listen every week or we read every day with dirt, spiritual dirt in our ears. And when a surgeon is preparing for surgery, he or she will work hard to sterilize as many Uh, as much of the environment as possible. And uh, he'll wash his hands and wash them very thoroughly. The the instruments used in the the procedure will be sterilized. Uh, They take great pains to keep the rooms and even the air as clean as possible. When we listen to God's word, we need to go through the same sterilization process. We, We need to make sure that we come ready to hear God's word. Uh, Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 24. This is something that's an every week part of my life and and really for all of us should be an everyday part of our lives. Verse 3 says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? So that asks the question, who can come to God? Who can hear from God? And he answers this way, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully, It says, if you're going to really hear from God, if you're going to come into the presence of God, you've got to come with clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24, 5, the very next verse, that person will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Have you ever wondered how somebody whose life is just filled with sin can come and sit through a worship service and hear a message that for some person, it, it, it brings them to their knees in repentance. But for another person, it seems not to shake them at all. It's because you can have so much dirt in your ears that the message is so distorted that you are so deceived that it just can't get through. i tell you something I do. You may have noticed I usually sit or stand right over here before the message and I know this is childish, but I, I learned this in a children's sermon a bunch of years ago, I, I did. And, and so I, I just, I do it every, every time I preach. And a little hand motion, I say that verse that I just read, that I, we need to have clean hands and we need to have a pure heart. And so you'll notice every time I preach, I, I go through that, that's my prayer. I, I sing all the songs but one or half of one song, just depending on how long it takes me to get through it. And even though I've done this before I come out here, I do it again. Father, I, I'm going to stand and preach your word in a moment, and I want to stand with clean hands. And so I hold my hands out like this for just a minute, just as sort of a, as, as a physical reminder of what I'm doing. And, 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 I, and I think about, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Is there something, is there an attitude? Is there an action? 
uh, is, is, there, is there a thought that has run through my mind that is not pure and that has not been confessed? And I just take a moment, and I mean, I'm, I'm quiet, I don't make a big deal about it, but, but if you just look, and you don't need to look, you need to be focused on other things, but I do this every week. Lord, I want to preach with clean hands. And then I say, I want to preach with a pure heart. And I, you know, this is the childish part, but I'm sort of making a little heart shape with my hands. That's not very manly, is it? So, I mean, pretend like I don't actually do that, but... Um, <laughs> And then I, so pure heart, I, 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 I question my motives a little bit. Uh, Lord, am I about to stand up there and preach so that people will be impressed with something I say? Or am I standing up there to point people towards you and to your greatness and the purity and wonder and power of your word? And I just talk to God, I have a little confession time about, you know, if there are any improper motives in my life. And that's my preparation to stand and teach. Now, here's where this applies to you. You ought to have the same preparation when you hear. We need to come with clean hands and a pure heart. That's what he's saying in verse 21, that, that when God's word gets filtered through the dirt in our ears, it is distorted. And when distortion comes, deception comes. How can we be decepted, decepted, decept, deceived by listening with stopped up ears? Well, let me give you the second way that we can be deceived. We can listen without a mirror. Listen without a mirror. Now, look back at verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So there's that word, deceiving. If you, if you listen to God's word but you don't do God's word, you will have deception in your life. Uh, if you have hearing minus doing, it always equals deception. When God's word comes into our lives, it pricks our heart. When you hear a challenge, when you hear sin taught on, when you hear a call to prayer or to greater commitment, it challenges, it pricks our heart, and it hurts a little bit. You know what it means to be under the conviction of the Lord? Now, when that happens, your response will be one of two things. Either you are going to acquiesce, you're going to do what God has convicted you to do, or you are going to insulate yourself from that pain. You're going you're to push God away. You're going to come up with a, with a reason that doesn't apply to you, or you're going to come up with a way that that applies more to this person than to you, so you don't need to listen to it. So you're either going to respond to it, or you're going to insulate yourself from it. Now, the more you insulate yourself from that, the more you will be deceived. You will think something is true about your spiritual life that is not true about your spiritual life. And the more you hear God's word and push it away, the harder your heart becomes and the more deceived you will be. You know, if I were to have to go around the back of this church today, let's say we had some sort of emergency, I don't know what it would be, but somebody handed me a shovel and they said, you need to dig a ditch, a three foot ditch all the way around the back property of this church. Now, I'd get out there with the shovel. You told me to do it. I'd try my best. But it wouldn't take very long. And what would happen to my hands? Now, I don't do a whole lot of ditch digging. So what, what do you think would happen to my hands? Well, my hands would become blistered. Those blisters would pop up on my hands. But, you know, if I continued to dig that ditch, in fact, if I dug a ditch every day for the next three years, what would happen to my hands? The blisters would turn to calluses. They would get hard. 
They wouldn't blister anymore. Some of you, somebody will come up and show me after the service. I'm sure, uh, because when I've used this illustration before, people always do. Somebody will come up and they'll show me that their hands are just so calloused, you know, that you could drive a nail in it and it wouldn't hurt, right? Now, the same thing can happen to our hearts. God convicts us when we hear, when we, when we read God's word, God convicts us and it's like a blister on our heart. And we say no, and it's like another blister on our heart, and we push God away, push God away, until eventually our heart is so calloused that we don't feel anything when we read God's Word. There's such deception in our lives. We could read the book of James. It doesn't, it doesn't mess us up at all. We think that none, none of this has anything to do with me. I'm doing everything in the book. This isn't, this isn't uh, convicting to me. Well, the reason it's not convicting has more to do with the callousness on our heart, of our heart than it does the way that we live. And so here he warns us about deception. But if you look at verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 23, I love this illustration. So let me just read it to you again, 23 and 24. It says, because if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone who looks at his own face in the mirror. All right, you did that this morning, right? Hopefully you looked at yourself in the mirror and you saw yourself. Verse 24, for he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom preserves, perseveres in it. He's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of God's word. Here's the illustration. Can you imagine that uh, you look at yourself in the mirror and you see that you've got, you had a hamburger last night for dinner, and there's ketchup and mustard just smeared all over the side of your face. And you look at that and you say, well, that doesn't look very nice. And then you go about your business and you never wash your face. And you come to church and you're wondering why everybody's just sort of looking at you funny. And, and uh, so, so, so you have looked and you saw what the problem was, but you didn't do anything to fix it. That's what happens with so many people as we, we read God's word. God's word is a mirror. And so when I look into God's word, I see the problems in my life. But God's word has no value if I don't do something about the problems in my life. Does that make sense? You don't need, there's no point in having a mirror if you're not going to wipe the mustard off of your chin, right? And there's no point in God's word. We have devalued God's word if we don't do what it shows us we need to do. In fact, and this will surprise some of you, our goal when we read God's word is not even to study God's word. Now, listen to me because that, that sounds like heresy. We, we do need to study God's word, but the purpose is not just so that we'll know more about God's word. When you look into a mirror, what are you focusing on? Are you focusing on the mirror? That there's a piece of glass there and it's painted with some silver paint on the back or something. I don't know exactly how that works. And, and you think about the, the, uh, the border around it that holds it into place. Or, are you focused on the mirror? When you look at a mirror, are you thinking about that is a fine quality mirror? Is that what you're thinking? No, you don't even look at the mirror. Your eyes don't even focus on the mirror. What are you looking at? You're looking at what the mirror reflects. That's what you're studying in the mirror. And when, when I read God's word, and James, there's no better example of this, I'm not just learning, 
the organizational structure of the book of James. I'm not, I'm not just trying to figure out the literary types in the book of James. I'm not even studying the book of James. I'm, I'm looking into the book of James to see what James says back about me. And so he, he says if, if we're going to not be deceived, we have to listen with a mirror. We have to keep the mirror before us and we need to make changes when we see that there are problems. How can God's word be a blessing to us? Don't let it be a textbook. You, you, the, the word of God that you have, the copy of the word of God that you have is not so that you can learn more about the details of God's word. As important as that is, because that'll help with the mirror, but the, it's, not a, it's not a textbook. Secondly, it's not an encyclopedia. It's not just a reference that you can go to when there's a theological debate in your house to find the answer. And it's not just a history book that you read for amusement. It is to be a mirror. God's word, if, it's, if we're not going to have deception in our life, it's going to be because it's a mirror. And we see what needs to change. And we make the change. Now let me give you the third thing. Uh, deception comes when we listen with good intentions. Uh, good intentions sound like good things. But, but let's focus on the last two verses of this chapter. They almost, I didn't read them while ago because I, I, if we'd have just read all of this together without any explanation, it would have seemed like these two verses don't fit. Like they, they, it's a change of subject, but it's not. Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. So there's that word deceive again. And so if you, if you think you're religious, if you think you're a good Christian, that's what that means, but you don't have control over your tongue, the things that you say, then your religion, your Christianity is worthless, worthless, and you are deceived. So he's still talking about deception. And he goes on in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion. So if your religion is not worthless, if it is good, if it is helpful, it is, if it is proper, here's what it'll look like. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now this is about deception as well. It just shows it in, in, in a higher contrast. So he says here, that if you're undeceived, pure religion, so if you have false religion, bad Christianity, you're deceived, but true religion, and he gives us three characteristics of that. He says, first of all, that you will be controlling your tongue, something that we're gonna talk about as we get further in the book of James. But he, he mentions that here because if you're not in control of your tongue, then God is not in control of your heart. There's, there's a connection there that we'll study more in the weeks to come. But that's why he mentions it here. If you're not in control of your tongue, the things you say, then that's an indicator that God is not in control of your heart. So controlling the tongue. The second one, looking after widows and orphans. He's talking about looking after people that can't bless you back. I mean, some people, you bless them, they can bless you. But, but an orphan can't bless you back, right? A widow can't bless you back. That's just you caring about people because God has cared about you. And then keeping yourself unstained from the world. That means living a life of holiness and purity. Now, how is this deception connected with the deception that we read up here about listening and not doing? So if I listen without a mirror, so I don't do what it says, it says deception comes. 
Here he's talking about not measuring our actions against God's word. God's word says this, what are my actions? That deception fills that gap. Here he's talking about measuring against intentions. This is hard to explain, but one of the worst things that you can say is I am willing. I guess this, this is what this, this is talking about. Too many times when it comes to our Christian faith, instead of being obedient, we are willing. Now, willing sounds okay, right? Willing sounds okay until you've asked your kids to clean the kitchen. You know what I mean? Well, I'm willing to clean the kitchen. Well, you didn't. Well, but I was willing to do it. See, oftentimes we are deceived Sometimes because we hear it but don't do it, but sometimes because we're willing, but we don't follow through. And between our willingness and our follow through, deception will fill, will fill that gap. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you watch cooking shows. Any of you Food Network cooking shows, so half your hands go up. The other half, you do, you just don't want to raise your hand, I know. They're all the rave. Everybody watches. Who's the lady in Oklahoma that half the church has gone to see in the last year or two? The, the pioneer, pioneer woman. That's like the new Baptist uh, Mecca, you know, that you got to go to every so often. And, and so everybody, it's, a, it's, a, it's just spreading across the nation. The nation. Uh, everybody watches the Food Network and Bobby Flay and the Cooking Channel. I'm embarrassed to even know these names, but... Um, at my house, we, we, we pay the cable company for one thing, and that's cooking shows. It's just, uh, it's on all day long, 24-7. I didn't know there were so many. And they're all at contests, and, you know, then they run out of contests, so then they're, they're, they're grocery shopping contests, and then there's contests for the losers to see if they can become the winners. I saw, well, Donald was watching one the other day, and it was, uh, they, they didn't bring together people who could cook well. They intentionally found people who couldn't cook. And it was like a contest to see who was the least bad cook. You know you're desperate when your show is. We're going to find the least bad cook in America. So everybody's watching these, these cooking shows, and we're becoming much better educated as a nation about cooking, culinary science. We know, I know all kinds of things about cooking just from walking through my house that I didn't know five years ago. But here's what... Um, the observers of our culture have noted. While we watch these shows, for the most part, we never cook any of this food. We just look at them and say, oh, that would be delicious. That would be good. Oh, I would love to eat that. And so we watch them, but we don't cook them. Now, I'll tell you something. I ask my wife from time to time, and men, this is um, not a suggestion, but something, I walk through the living room, I, I just have no interest in, um, it, it just seems to create family fights when I watch cooking shows. So, and, and maybe here's why. So I'll walk through the living room and there, uh, I know this happened a few days ago, uh, the pioneer woman was cooking pimento cheese grits with short ribs on top. And I thought, wow, that looks good. So I asked my wife, this is not a suggestion, guys. I said, well, when are we gonna have that? I mean, you love her talking about cooking for her cowboy. When are you going to cook for your cowboy? 
I want some pimento cheese grits with short ribs on them. That didn't go well. Ended with me having a pimento cheese sandwich from Walmart. No, listen, we learn all about these cooking things, but we, we don't do them. Now, in fairness, and my wife is a, is a wonderful cook, and she, as you can tell, takes care of me food-wise better than she should. But uh, I asked her about this this last week because I, I was thinking about using this uh, as an illustration today. And I said, you know, has this really changed? I mean, you watch all these cooking shows, which is fine, better than watching some other things, right? I said, Does, has it changed how we cook? And she said, well, you know, I, I'm willing to cook any, any of that. And then she recounted a couple of times in our marriage when she had. It was like 77, 78, I don't remember. But, <laughs> but see, that's exactly how so many of us approach the Bible. We read these things and we say, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to do that. And if we get really challenged on it, we'll talk about a couple of times we did. Yeah, six years ago, I remember I went on a mission trip. I remember I, a couple of years ago, I, I witnessed to somebody down the street for a minute or two, told them about Jesus. But for the most part, many of us approach the Bible like it's a cooking show. We're willing. We just don't ever do it. Now, that's what these last two verses are about. He says real religion is this, real Christianity. What does real Christianity look like? And he doesn't say you're willing, you're willing, you're willing. He says no, real Christianity, pure religion, pure and undefiled religion, verse 27, before God the Father, is to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What he's trying to do is, is tell us that we are deceived if we're simply willing. God is looking pure religion before the Father is not what you're willing to do. Don't be deceived. Don't be tricked. Don't think something is true when it is not. This isn't about your willingness. This is about your action. And so that he mentioned some very specific things. And this, these aren't the only things that you can do. Certainly, they're not the only things we ought to do. But he talks about widows, that we ought to take care of widows. Now, if we asked you to raise your hand, how many people are willing to take care of a widow? Every hand in the room would go up. But there are enough people in this room that every widow in our church ought to get a pastoral visit from somebody in our church every single week. Widows ought to be calling our office saying, could you please make those people stop coming to my house so much? But that's not the case, right? Widows are calling and telling us the opposite of that. Because while we are willing to do it, we're not doing it. You look at how many orphans are in this world. You look at how many children are in foster care in Nacogdoches County. There are enough families right here in this room this morning that we could provide every child in foster care in Nacogdoches County with a Christian home by the end of the week if we were serious about it. You say, well, pastor, I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to adopt. I'm willing to foster. But, but there's a difference between willingness and doing. And often the difference is deception. We think something is true of us that's just not true. Don't measure your spiritual maturity by your willingness. That's what he's saying. 
measure your spiritual maturity by your actions. We think about, uh, think about adoption, I, 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 foster care. I just have a soft place in my heart. That's a, it's a scriptural thing. It's a, God is the model, right? He's adopted me. He's adopted you into our families. So many people say, well, I could never, I could never adopt. And then there's a, there's a thousand reasons why people say, well, they can't afford it. Or people say they're too old or they're too young or their house is this or that. When, 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 when really almost none of those are real reasons not to, not to adopt. In, in fact, so many people say, well, I'm too old, but the, but the people who could best serve an adopted child oftentimes are, are older people. You know, as Christians, we ought to see somebody in our church adopting every week. We ought to see new foster care kids here every week. And it's not enough to say, I'm willing. Let's not just be willing. Let's do it. If there's some reason why you can't adopt, then here's what I'd like to see happen. I'd like to get a dozen emails in the next two or three days saying, Pastor, there are reasons why my family can't adopt and they're none of your business, okay? And that's fine, they are none of my business. But we wanna support that. And so you give us the name of a young family that you'll vouch for that's wanting to adopt and I'll go to their house and write them a $10,000 check and make it happen, you just let me know. But one way or the other, every family ought to be, uh, we, we, ought, we ought to see our religion go from what we are willing to do and what we intend to do to what we actually do. That's why he says, this verse just bothers so many people. Through the years, even good Bible scholars have wanted to write this verse out of the Bible. But it's, it's here for a reason. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their struggles and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's so many that are deceived, well-intentioned people, and they're either deceived because they've got dirt in their ears so God's word is distorted, or they're deceived because there's a space between what they hear and what they do, and deception fills that space, or, there's, or they're deceived because there's space between what they're willing to do, what they say they're willing to do, and what they, what they do. Now, I, I, I want to end, my, my goal in all of these messages in James is just to end, you know, we preach for an hour, but, but I want to end in just like a two-minute thing to really try to encapsulate that whole passage and make it, give you a real pithy question. And so if you look at your outline uh, this morning, there, there's something there at the bottom. And I, you can't, you don't have time to do this now, but I encourage you to take this home and do this. The question that's asked is this. What has changed or improved in your walk with the Lord in the last six months? What are some specific ways that you've grown or matured? And so I want you to write them down. Here's, here's the sin that was in my life six months ago. In the last six months, it's no longer a part of who I am. Or here's something in the last six months I did that showed my love for for the Lord, my sacrifice, here's something I did. I've never done that before. It's a first for me. I'm growing. I'm maturing. You know, when our kids are young, we, we record all the first, right? The first step, the first uh, word, the first uh, uh, day of school, the first, the first everything. Well, what are some of your firsts in the last six months? 
What's something that you've done spiritually in the last six months and it was a first for you? So how's your conduct changed because of the influence of Christ? And, and what's a first for you? Now here's the point of, of this exercise. You notice, I think it's in your outline right at the bottom. If you struggle to write something down, then you may very well be infected with the disease of deception. See, see, see that's, that's the point of this whole last seven verses of James 1. If you're a genuine Christian, there are going to be evidences that you can write down in your life. If they're not evidences, then on some level, there's deception. Does that make sense? If you're a Christian, there'll be evidences. I'm not saying if you can't fill this out that you're not a Christian, but I'm saying on at least some level, there's deception in our lives. Just so your head bowed, nice closed, let me pray. Father, this is just a, this is a hard message to preach. Even as I've wrestled with this passage this week, I, I, I've, you've pointed out some deception, some areas of deception in my life. I, I sometimes just, I, I can get so busy and I, I read my Bible and I study and I'm moving forward, I think. But I, I just, just, I, I just don't take a look at the mirror and really respond to it. I, sometimes I'm just so... Focus on learning more, I guess. I, but Father, forgive me for the deception between what I read and what I do. And Father, there have been some things in my life that you've pointed out this week that I've been, I've been willing or I've said I've been willing to do. But there's, uh, it'd be hard pressed to write them down what I've done. And I know that's deception. Your Holy Spirit is the teacher in a passage like this. Uh, only he can, can rivet it to our hearts. And I pray that he will do that right now. And that we will respond knowing that forgiveness because of the work of Christ is complete. And it is full. And we can have a right standing with you because of what Jesus has done. Help us to come to you and ask you to take away all deception. Help me to see me like you see me. And then to respond. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.